Well, if you guys have been with us at all this year, you know that we've been spending our time together really developing this idea that life for the believer in Jesus is mission. And you know that we've been using the book of Acts as the vehicle by which to do that. And so in our personal worship time as individual members of this church, we've been digging into this book. And then on Sunday morning, we've been gathering together as for corporate worship and together we've been digging into this book. And then we've been breaking out into our community groups. And there we've been digging into this book. And what we've seen in this book is a picture of our forefathers and foremothers of the faith. So Luke is coming to us, and with this book he's saying, hey, I want you to see the early church, and I want you to see that these people learned to live their lives as mission, and I want you to see that as a result of the fact that they learned their lives as mission, that God used them literally to turn their whole world upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He just, he did. And we've seen the record of that as we've moved through this book, but not just in this book. We've seen it from ancient historians. We've seen it from ancient eyewitnesses. We heard it coming out of the mouth of the last non-Christian emperor of the Roman Empire. The reality of Christianity is that it began with 120 people and it took over the Roman Empire, became not just the dominant religion, but the official religion in less than 200 years. That is utterly astounding. Christianity in the first few centuries grew explosively. Amazing. And today, as we open it up again, and as we look again at this picture of the early church, what we're going to see is that this early church, which is growing explosively, hits a snag. These guys hit a bump in the road. All of a sudden, they come up to a, a, against a barrier that stands and threatens the ability of this church to continue to spread the gospel in this city of Jerusalem. And what I want you to see today is not just what they do with that barrier. They're going to overcome it. What I want you to discern is why They do what they do because here's the bottom line of the whole day. Lost people and the mission, guys, is to lost people. That's what's at stake in this story, the mission. Lost people are precious to God and they need, as a result, to be precious to us. If we have the heart of the Father, we'll share His evaluation in regards to His lost sons and daughters. And in fact, they need to become so precious to us that when, like this early church that we'll see today, we come up against barriers, and we do all the time, we will love them, value them enough by the power of the same Spirit that empowered them to overcome those barriers. So we pick up our study today in Acts chapter 6, beginning of verse 1, where Luke says this. He says, now in these days, when the disciples, that's not the 12 disciples, that's all Christians in this early church. When all the followers of Jesus, he's saying, were what? They were increasing in number. They were growing explosively. Christianity is spreading through this city like a wire wildfire. Uh-oh, here we go. Here's the snag. You ready? A complaint by the Hellenists, meaning the Greek-speaking, Mediterranean-cultured, Jewish converts to Christianity who were a part of this Jerusalem church arose against the Hebrews, meaning the Hebrew or Aramaic-speaking Judean-cultured Jews who also were members of this early church. And here's the complaint. It was that their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution to which the entire church, Greek and Hebrew, had sold land and possessions and all of this stuff as we've studied and seen and contributed to. So in other words, the whole church contributes to one pot. All the needs of the widows and everybody else are met out of this one pot, both in the church and in the community. And the Greek-speaking Jews are going, hey, well, wait a minute. There's an inequity here, guys. Here's the deal. Our widows are not being treated as equally or as well as the Hebrew-speaking widows, and that's a problem. And it's not just a problem in terms of their relationships within the church. That's an issue, but it's secondary. 
The problem is that it threatens the mission. And here's why. Because as we're going to see in a second, the suggested remedy is for the apostles upon whom the Spirit has come and whose preaching the Spirit is blessing hugely as thousands upon thousands are coming to faith in Jesus as the apostles are going out and preaching the gospel. Okay, so the suggested remedy is you guys need to spend less time preaching and more time administrating this church because it's getting out of hand. But then in addition to that, it threatens the mission because the whole city of Jerusalem are looking at the church now. And they're saying, okay, here's the deal. We've seen how this Jesus makes a difference in the way that you spend money. You guys are nuts on that. Or at least that's the way it looks. We've seen that he makes a difference in the way that you embrace suffering and use it for mission. We've seen that. We've seen it makes a difference in marriage and on and on and all these different categories of life. Okay, we've seen that. But what about prejudice? Because this is a deep-seated issue in this city. It's widely known that the Hebrew-speaking, Judean-cultured Jews kind of looked at the Greek-speaking, you know, Mediterranean-cultured Jews, kind of just patted them on the head. You know, it's like, ah, we know that you're Jewish, but you're not quite as good as us. You're not as good as us. So does your Jesus make a difference here? And as an aside, and it is a total aside, okay, he totally needs to. He really does. Luke says, now in these days, when the number of the followers of Jesus were growing explosively, a complaint by the Hellenists, which threatened the mission to the lost, arose against the Hebrews because their widows weren't being neglected in the daily distribution. And now notice what they do and notice why they do it, because what they do really gives you the why. It tells you that these people got our forefathers and mothers in the faith understood. You know what? Lost people, precious to God. Therefore, precious to us. So precious that when we come up against a barrier, by the power of the Spirit, we mow through it. We deal with it. We come together and we overcome it. Luke says in the 12 apostles of Jesus, this is verse 2, summon the full number of the disciples. So they gather up the whole church, which at this point is a lot of people. And they said, guys, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables, meaning to begin to administrate the church. If we do that, our gospel mission to lost people is going to come grinding to a halt. Okay, But we do need to deal with the issue. That's true, too, because our testimony in this community is at stake. And so if we don't deal with the issue, well, then our gospel mission to the lost people in this community is going to come grinding to a halt. So here's the solution. Therefore, they say to the whole congregation, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, and whom we will then appoint to this duty of administrating the church and clearing us of this scandal and allowing the mission to go forward. For they say, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word, both to you, to the existing church and to the lost in our community. And then, and here's where I take poetic license. Even though it doesn't say this, I have to believe that Peter Peter preached a sermon, guys. I really do. And I think that for a couple of reasons. Number one, he's a preacher. His whole church is there. I mean, there's no way that he can resist. Number two, this is a massively important issue. This is a really big deal. It's not a little thing. It's not a blip on the radar screen. It threatens to take the train off the tracks. And the way these guys respond, as we'll see in the end, is overwhelmingly awesome. 
I think Peter at this point said, look, we're going to take our vote in a minute. And you guys are going to choose seven guys. We got it. Everybody knows the plan. Okay, cool. Here's the thing. Before we take our vote, I want to talk to you about the value of people. Just have a seat. I can see him saying. And I think he told them three stories out of the mouth of Jesus. Sheer speculation. I don't have it on video. But man, are they on point. And we have them in Luke 15, beginning in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And who are these guys, tax collectors and sinners? They are the least valuable people in their day. Keep that in mind. Because we're talking about the value of people, right? If you had passed out a poll and said, okay, we're trying to figure out who the least valuable people are, tax collectors and sinners, absolutely hands down, and they're all drawing near to hear Jesus, who, as we're going to see, not just embraces them, not just receives them, but he identifies with them. The the criticism in a second is that he's going to be that he shares table with them. Culturally speaking, that was a big deal. You know, they didn't have casual lunches the way that we do today. Hey, let's get together, have lunch. I'd like to get to know you. To share table with somebody was intimate. It was to say, I'm one with this person. Jesus is one with these people? Oh, yeah, not only that, but just like he did for me and just like he did for you, he lays down his life to remove the barrier of their sin and mine and yours. His heart is the heart of the Father. The question as we move through these stories is, okay, yeah, but what about my heart? What about your heart? Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes, who incidentally would have won the MVP award if they had done the poll, grumbled against Jesus, saying, this man Jesus receives these valueless sinners, and he eats with them. There it is. And so then it's in response to this criticism that Jesus then tells them and us this parable about the value of people. Jesus says, what man among you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he gets tired? Till he runs out of time, till he has to be somewhere else, till he gets frustrated and says, you know what, I I think I've spent enough time on this sheep. I I think I've spent enough money trying to find this sheep. I think I've spent enough of my emotional resources on this particular sheep. This sheep is just, you know, she's kind of driving me nuts, to be very frank, and I'm not sure this sheep is worth looking anymore. It's not what happens. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And why? Because it's screamingly obvious. Because that sheep, just like all the other sheep, already in the pen, already in faith in Christ, just like you perhaps, that lost sheep, oh man, that lost sheep is precious. He's precious to God. He needs to be precious to us, if we have the heart of the Lord. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And then, of course, when he has found it, he he gives it a map and says, here, this is going to help you find your way home. Okay, no, he gives it directions. He says, over the river, through the woods, past grandmother's house, take a left. You're going to be fine. No way you can mess this up. He hands it a GPS with the voice-guided direction thingy. So it's like there's no way, you know, and he plugs in the address. He's like, this is where the sheepfold is. He calls an expert. Maybe that's what he does. A pastor or somebody like that. And listen, pastors have their place. 
But, so he calls an expert and he says, hey, listen, I found the lost sheep. <laughs> yeah, you know, not a great neighborhood, I'm not going to lie, okay? Uh, and I'm not really sure what to do with this sheep, so what I'm, what I'm going to do here is I've tied him to the pole here at the corner of Lost and good grief, I can't wait to get out of here street, okay? So what I'm needing for you to do is come get the sheep, even though he's in my office. He's in my school. He's in my family. He's my friend. He's my friend. And when he has found it, Do you know what he does? Because this is what it takes. When a sheep gets lost and scared, you know what it does? Eventually it just flops on the ground and then that's it. Won't go anywhere. So he comes across the sheep who's just, you know, not getting up. Filthy sheep. Who knows what he's walked through and rolled in? Bug infested sheep. Like I'm a germaphobe. I'm freaking out just thinking about this sheep right now. Flea infested sheep. You have no idea how badly I fear fleas. No idea. He gets down in the dirt with the sheep, guys. He gets his arms up under this sheep. He puts this sheep, bugs and all, on his shoulders, okay? And with bugs climbing all up into his hair, he brings it home, castigating the sheep all the way. I can't believe you did this. I can't hear you say, oh my goodness, you stink so bad. Do you know how many times I'm going to have to shower? Good grief, my wife is going to have to spray me with Raid when I get home just to get the bugs off of me. What a terrible, lousy, stinky... He lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And then Jesus does what only Jesus can do. It's awesome. He goes... Don't know if you know this, but there are windows into heaven. Let me show you. I can only, I'm, I'm Jesus. That, therefore I can do this. And he throws back the curtains and he says, look, look and see heaven and make it change you. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And that doesn't mean there are people who don't need to repent. It means that the people, the children of God are out here, guys. And some have repented and some have not repented. And just like you and I who have and we're in the sheepfold, okay? Those who haven't are precious to God. Look, and here's the punchline. They need to be precious to me. And to you so much so that when we run up against some kind of barrier, it's not, oh man, it's dinner time. I think I'm done looking for the sheep. And I like to eat on time. So then in case we missed it, Jesus gives us a second story. You can hear Peter regaling the crowd with this. He says, or what woman, this is verse 8, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she, well, gets tired. Until she says, you know what, there's an opportunity cost to all of this time and effort that I'm putting into finding this coin. The truth of the matter is I could probably go out and earn a different coin. And, you know, at some point I just got to call it a day on this coin. I'm not going to find this coin. I mean, you know, what's the deal with this coin? It's just not worth that. No, it's not what she does. What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? Why? Because it's redundant on purpose, because it's precious, just like all the coins already in the purse. 
just like all the coins already in the purse. And so then when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, kind of a pattern going on here, saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. And then Jesus is like, okay, little pause in the narrative, windows of heaven thing again, this is going to be awesome. Might want to put your sunglasses on. And he rolls back the curtains and says, guys, look, I want you to look. I want you to see. I want you to gain the perspective of heaven because I want it to be your perspective. He says, just so I tell you that there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And here's why, because just like all the sinners who already have... The lost sinner is precious too. So much so. So much so that we've got to do whatever it takes to reach him. But then just in case we're fuzzy still, Jesus drives it home with a third story. That's This is the one you totally know. It's brilliant. It's an amazing story. It's a story about a father who is clearly a picture of God and two sons who I think are both a picture of us, just maybe at different times of our lives. And as the story goes, the younger, more rebellious son comes to his dad one day and he says, look, you know, why don't we just cut through it all here? And I'm just going to tell you how I really feel. Here's the deal. I I don't want to serve you. I don't want to work for you. I don't really want to hang out with you. I don't want to talk with you. I'm pretty sure I don't want to live with you. Uh, Yeah, there's just basically nothing about you that is at all attractive to me. So here's the deal. I do want what you have. And I'm not willing to wait for you to die so that I can get it. So so here's kind of what I'm thinking. Why don't you just give me my inheritance now? And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. And that is an offensive thought. Now, in that day... In that day, that was an awful thought. This is a shame-based culture that this story takes place in. The people listening to this story in the first century are so furious that they are ready to beat that son. That's the point. Jesus paints the picture of the least valuable person on earth for these first century Jews. So, Dad, what do you think? Dad says, okay, you want to go that route? Fine. Gives him his inheritance. And, you know, ten minutes later, the kid's out the door and halfway to the far country that his heart has already been residing in. By the way, watch out for your heart. Be careful where you go in your heart, because here's the deal. Where you go in your heart, your body oftentimes follows. And so he goes to the far country, and the party is on in the far country, and he spends all his money in the far country. And then he realizes, wow, all these friends? Not really, not so much. And he finds himself destitute in the far country, and he's pulling out the brochures going, this was not in any of the brochures, you know? Like this part of the far country, nobody ever told me about. It promised life, it brought death. It promised light, it brought darkness. It promised joy, it brought sorrow. And he sells himself to a Gentile pig farmer, and he takes the job of feeding the pigs. Again, for a Jewish boy? Good grief. Says that he sinks so low that he longs to eat what the pigs are eating. Okay? That's the far country. Then he wakes up one day and he realizes, you know, I don't have to live like this after all. I've been thinking it through and I realize 
I mean, even the servants in my dad's house have it better than this. Maybe I can just persuade him to bring me back as a servant. And so he gets up and he turns his back on the far country. Sounds a little like repentance, right? And then he starts walking home. And he knows, however, that when he gets home, he's going to have to face dad. And this is going to be a little awkward. This is going to be kind of intense. So he starts thinking, okay, I need to put my speech together before I get there. And he begins to put his speech together. It's a long walk, so he has time. And he's working through his speech, and he's editing it, and he's writing it, and he's rewriting it, and writing it, and rewriting it, and finally gets it down on a three-by-five card. And then he just begins to practice it over and over again. And it goes something like this. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I love that line. I think he thought that through well. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Huh? Nice, right? So here's what I'm thinking. If you could just take me back as a servant, I, I don't care what bunk you give me in the servant's house. I don't care what job you give me on the farm, man. If I can just curl up in a corner under some small part of your roof, okay, I will be forever thankful. Please just take me back in any capacity at all. And home he comes. And if you know the story, the camera angle shifts to the dad. And where's the dad? Because I think the dad is on the roof of the house. And I say that because the houses in those days, the roofs served as patios. So they would put a staircase up the side of the house and people would go up the side of the house and they would go up onto the roof of the house and they would enjoy the breeze and the view and all that stuff. And that view part, that is the second reason I think he's on the, the, the roof of the house because I think it's the highest part of the whole property and it's the best vantage point to look down the road to the far country, which it's pretty clear that dad has been looking down ever since he watched his son walk away down it, longing for the return of his son. And so dad's sitting up on the roof, you know, and he's staring down the road. And he sees a little speck on the horizon, a little person far off. And he thinks... Hmm. Now, he's seen lots of people going up and down the road, so not unusual to see a person, but, but the look of this little tiny speck is kind of familiar. Maybe it's his height, maybe it's his weight, you know, or maybe it's the way that he holds his head, his slope of his shoulders, maybe it's the way he moves his arms and legs. The reality is that all of us have kind of a distinctive way that we move. And if you're a parent and you have kids, you can pick your kid out of a lineup as they're walking across the street with their classmates far before you can see their unique facial features. And his heart begins to beat about a half a beat faster as he thinks, well, wait a minute, looks familiar, right? So it gets a little bit closer, a little bit bigger. A little bit more familiar. Now his heart's beating a little bit faster. He moves up to the edge of his seat. A little bit closer, a little bit bigger, a little bit more familiar. Now he's standing up and walking to the banister, okay? A little closer, a little bigger, a little clearer, a little more familiar. His heart's pounding. He calls a servant over because his eyes are not what they used to be. And he says, okay, look, I want you to look at this person coming up the street. I know ah, they're kind of far away, but just, just tell me, do you think that they look at all familiar to you? And the servant says, Master, listen, you've been up on the roof every single day, and here's the deal. I don't want to be wrong about this. But I watched the boy grow up too. And it does look kind of like him, right? A little closer, a little bit more familiar, a little bit clearer. Oh, man, that's his son. And all of a sudden, he realizes it, and his heart is pounding out of his chest, and he does something that no dignified Middle Eastern man would ever do in that culture. He reaches down, and he grabs his robes. He ties them off at his legs, so he bares his legs, right? Shameful. We come to church in shorts. They would not do that. And he does it so he can do another utterly undignified thing. Run! 
Dad's going to run the heck with his dignity. And he comes racing off the roof and he comes down the staircase and he's whipping around the corner and his robes catch the banister and just rips it right off the side of the house. And he comes racing through the front yard and his servants are out there planting, you know, the annual flowers or whatever. And he comes running right through everything they do and it's just flowers and things flying all over the place. He takes the white picket fence, okay, he clears it by three feet. He lands in the street. And he slips and falls because he's, you know, it's so much momentum and he rolls around and he pops up and he looks at his boy and his boy looks at him and freezes. And here comes dad. Full on sprint. Arms pumping, legs flying, dust going all over the place, eyes on fire, lungs burning. And Mr. Three by Five card is thinking, uh, you know, like, is he coming to kiss me or kill me? Because he knows what he deserves. Do you know what you deserve? Do you really? So here comes dad. And the boy thinks, might be good for dad to hear the speech before he gets here. So he starts shouting it out in advance. You know, he's got his card out. He's like, um, father, uh, <clears throat> sin against heaven and against you. I thought that was a particularly good line. And, um, and no longer worthy to be called your son. You need to know that before you traverse the next 50 yards. And if you could just slow down, I've got a plan of how I could become a servant. And if I could just, and if you can just, and it's brace for impact, right? And impact there is. The father takes the son down in the street and then you know what he does? He beats the tar out of this kid. All the neighbors have come out. They're like, yes, beat him up. Kicking him, bloodies him, and he vindicates his perfectly righteous and holy name once again in the community. Is that what he does? Is that what he deserves? Why does he not do that? Because there's somebody telling the story, guys, named Jesus, who receives that for us on the cross. So we don't meet a God of anger, a father who beats us. We meet a father with a very different disposition. Oh, he takes him down. Oh, he takes him down hard. He takes him down at a full sprint. He doesn't let up. He just plows right into him. And he takes him from like here to the piano on a slide in the dirt, okay? And he's got his arms around his son. And he has his legs around his son. And he's rolling around in the street with his son. And he's creeping over his boy, showering him with his tears, showering him with his kisses, showering him with shouts of joy to heaven. And why? Because his son who was lost is found. His son who was dead lives. Because he's precious to him. And he picks his son up. He gets him up and he's like, oh, good grief. Come on in the house. Come on in the house. So he brings him in the house and he whips out this perfectly beautiful robe and it covers over all of the vestiges of this boy's life in the far country. He puts the ring of sonship on his hand. He won't hear nothing about being a servant. Stop, stop, stop. He kills the fattened calf. He calls out the neighbors. He strikes up the band and the party begins. He's going to show his son what real life and real joy looks like and where it's actually found. Because his boy is precious to him. You see the heart of the father? What about my heart? What about your heart? All right, so then the camera angle shifts again. This time it shifts to the older brother. You remember him? He's the other son. He's the dutiful one. He's the one who works every day, shows up early, goes home late. That guy. He's coming in from the field. He's wiping his brow. Hot day, man. Working hard. Here's the music. 
calls over one of the servants and he's like, what's up? And the servant goes, oh, you remember your brother, the, the one and the, the deal and the inheritance and the wish you were dead and better for me then. And then he went to the far country and squandered it and that. He's back. Your brother's back. And what does the older brother do? It's awesome. He throws his hands up in the air. He goes, praise God. This is unbelievable. My brother's home. I've been praying for this, longing for this, hoping for this ever since he left. Every night, his table at the chair, that it's just awkward. It's empty. Every Christmas and New Year's and Thanksgiving and Easter, it's like, oh, every time his birthday rolled around to the anniversary day to the day he left. It's like a funeral in our home. I emailed him. I texted him. I called him every day. In fact, his phone was out of order for the last two weeks. I don't know what's going on. And I went to the far country to try to find him. I exhausted my inheritance, hiring investigators to search him out because that's how valuable he is. And so what does the older brother do? He does what his dad did. He pulls his robes up. He ties them off of the thigh, naked legs, whatever, you know. So then he runs and he runs into the house. He takes the front steps five at a time and he busts through the door and he goes, where is he? And he sees his brother from across the room and he goes running to his brother, right? Bam, taking him down again. Slides halfway to the fireplace, arms around him, legs around him, weeping over him, giving him kisses, showering him with shouts of joy to the Lord. And why is that? Because his brother's precious to him? No, he doesn't do any of those things. And why not? Why does he not behave like the father? He doesn't feel like the father. He doesn't have a heart like the father. Here's the story, or here's the question that these three stories come and present to us. The question is, do I and do you? Because God's lost children are precious to Him. The point is, they need to be precious to us. In fact, so precious that when we run up against something that stands between us and them, by the power of God's same Spirit that worked through them to change the world, man, we take it on. We tackle it. So I don't have this on videotape, and I can't prove it, but I think Peter preached a message that went something like this, and I think that... Because look at what these guys do. Acts 6, verse 5, it says, And what Peter and the apostles said to them about choosing the seven guys to administrate the church so that they could keep preaching and be cleared of this scandal, pleased the whole gathering. And so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. He's not even Jewish. What's awesome about that list is every one of those guys is a Greek speaker in the church. A Mediterranean cultured, mostly Jews, except for the last guy who's a Gentile. It's striking. So they don't come together and say, okay, look, we realize we have a problem and we need to form a coalition government. So we'll take three Greek speakers and three Hebrew speakers, and then if one of you apostles can be sort of like the vice president in the Senate, you can be the you know tiebreaker if necessary, and we'll all work together to kind of make sure that everything's equitably... No, they don't do that at all. They are so struck by this that they're like, A, the plan is good. B, for the sake of our city, we, the Hebrew-speaking Jews, are totally in agreement that every one of the seven need to be from the Greek-speaking community. We want to send the message to this town that Jesus makes a difference. And we'll trust them to take care of us. 
And we know that they will. And so then it was these guys. These were the men who in this congregation set before the apostles and the apostles prayed and laid their hands on them. And then what happened? What happened? The word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied, here it is, greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many, even of the priests of Israel, became obedient to the faith. What happened is the church continued, Christianity continued to explosively grow in that city and then eventually out of that city to the entire empire. Why? Because these people got that lost people matter to God. They're precious to him and they need to be precious to us. So much so that when we encounter a barrier, okay, you know what? We need to deal with it. So I thought I'd spell out some barriers for us. Things that we need, I think, to address as individuals and even as a church. I think individually, honestly, when it comes to talking to people about Jesus, we are all of us sort of kind of tied up with the barrier of fear and discomfort and this is awkward and this isn't celebrated in our culture and this might get a little weird and what if and... And a lot of that has to do with the fact that we don't even know how to handle it or what to say. Ever experienced that? I think part of the solution would be for you guys to come to our personal evangelism training. We're doing it the third Saturday of every month, including this one on the 16th. It's two hours. If you're going to go to Haiti, which I'll talk about in a second... Stick around for another couple hours, just make it a full morning because you need to take the missions 101 to go to Haiti anyway. But please, please understand that the New Testament knows absolutely nothing of silent Christians. Nothing. If the apostles were here, we could line them up on the stage, you know, and we could say, hey, you know, um, pretty sure that I have not had a serious spiritual conversation about Jesus with an unbeliever in, uh, uh, you know, like the last year, okay? If that's you, I think they would be dumbfounded. They, I don't think they'd have a category for it. And I don't say that to make you feel bad. I'm saying that to say, guys, we got to wake up. We have a message of eternal life, man. We can't closet that thing to ourselves and see the... The children of God are too valuable for that. I think that we face barriers when it comes to world missions, and I'll tell you what I think the barrier is. We don't really care. I mean, just to be blunt. We need a greater heart for the world beyond our borders. That is a large part of why we've scheduled four trips to Haiti, so that you and so that I can go and see what God does, not just through us there, but in us there, I think we'll take, bring back far more than we bring over. I really do. It's awesome. At the beginning of this year, we said, you know, if we can just get like 60 adults, in addition to the students, we've got 37 students going this summer. It's amazing. But in addition to the students who are kind of out ahead of us on all this, and have been now for years, if we can get 60 adults to go, I think that that would transform not just them, not just their families, but that could transform us. I think it would transform our worship. I think it would transform our impact in the community. We have 26 or 28 right now signed up to go for the first trip, so I think the Lord is in this. But there are three more trips, two in the summer, one in November, 
develop a heart for the world. God sends us into the world. Thirdly, we need volunteers. We have an awesome core group of people that is ever expanding, helping us do work around this church. And we need more, particularly in our children's ministries. There's a whole card full of options and ideas and things that you can do. And if you've been sitting around waiting for something to do and you're good with kids, I think they've got a table in the back. We need to build depth in our worship ministry. We need more really gifted musicians to come up out of this congregation and to say, you know what, I like what you guys are doing, I like where this thing is going, and I'm willing to make the sacrifices necessary to be a part of that. Talk to Ryan. It's awesome. We have a major parking challenge. Probably you didn't notice that. No, seriously. I mean, we really do. I don't have a challenge. I get here at 6.45 in the morning, so I'm good, you know. But everybody else does. We did a parking study. Someone here did it for us with our deacons. We were using 79.1% of our parking spaces. But here's the problem with that. Let's just call it 80, okay? 80% of our spaces are full. That includes all of the spaces on the west side of Federal Highway. Uh Uh-oh. Not a lot of us park over there. That's all the Better Homes and Gardens parking lot. That's the parking lot at the Eagle Building across the street. You know what that means, effectively? That if we don't start moving cars to the west side of Federal Highway, we're already full. Help us with that. We're going to have a crossing guard every Sunday from 8.30 to 1 to stop this traffic light. And only after they stop all the traffic, if you could park over there and drop your family off first. Don't bring your kids. If you're a single mom, park on this side, please. But if you can drop off your family and go park over there and free up a space here, it actually makes a difference. See, some of you would park in Timbuktu and walk here and it wouldn't be any big deal. But there are a lot of people who don't have your worship ethic, who if they pull up and they can't find a space in about 30 seconds, you know, it's kind of like a gas station, you know, you fill up and if they can't, you can't use the card, you're like, I'm out. You know, if I got to go inside to pay, forget it. I'm offended by that. I really am. I hate that. I just, I will literally just, oh, they don't have a, that's ridiculous. I punish them for it and I just leave. Okay? That happens here. That happens here. That's the culture we live in. So let's inconvenience ourselves and park elsewhere. Support this church financially. If this is your spiritual home, invest in it and worship God with your wealth here. And then lastly, I'm going to pray and we're going to show you a video. But one of our mantras this year, marriage is mission. It's something like everything else that we need to do differently from the rest of the world so that when the world notices and asks us about the difference, we can introduce them to the difference. And his name is Christ. So pay attention to the video and to what Ryan has to say. All right? Because here's the deal, guys. Just like we're precious to the Father, and boy, I hope you've seen how precious you are. Let that wash over you. His lost sons and daughters... They're precious to him too, and they need to be more and more and more and more precious to us. Okay? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that though uh, we have lived our lives in the far country, our hearts have gone places, our minds have gone places, our bodies have gone places, that we can't ungo and we've done things that we cannot undo.
We are stained with a filth that we cannot make clean, with a stench that we cannot rid ourselves of. We're thankful, Lord, that though what we deserve from you is your righteous indignation and wrath, what we receive from you because of Christ is a father who takes us down in the street in love. Lord, help us to embrace that and to embrace Jesus who received all that we deserve on his cross, a tree of death to him, a tree of life for us. Call us back from the far country that we're in. Call us to find safety and forgiveness and cleansing in Christ. Cover our sin and shame with the robe of his righteousness. Place the ring of sonship upon our hand or of daughtership. Lord, welcome us into your family and teach us how to love people like you do. Do these things for your glory and for our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.